Hello again, everyone, and welcome back to our awesome Enterprise Linux Security Podcast. I'm here, as always, with Zhao. How you doing? All good, Jay. Thanks for having me. Hi, everybody. So we are up to episode eight this time around, and we've decided to get caught up with some of the happenings in the news lately. And um, another thing that I was hope you know I couldn't wait to get to when we you know get through some of the topics. Now we get to talk about the news, and I'm still waiting for the day to come to where we have uh, breaking news. So this big thing just happened. Um, I don't think that's going to be today, or at least I. Hope it isn't, but we definitely have some things to get caught up on, and um, we have a number of different things we're going to talk about that's been in the news. So it should be a good discussion. Yeah, absolutely. Pretty big stories that broke last week, so we have lots of material to cover today. Yep. So what should we start with first? <laughs> the Trojan Sourceman is really cool. Just okay. the name is amazing. Um, so yeah, just to, to sum it up, uh, Trojan Source is a type of attack that was unveiled a couple of days ago, and it fits in the category of supply source attacks that we've already discussed a few episodes ago. And this is pretty fun. Most tools and most compilers uh, these days, they are prepared to work with Unicode. And Unicode has over 140,000 characters in it. Comparing that to ASCII, which has 255, um, yeah, it's a massive difference. And a couple of the characters in Unicode let them provide an indication on how the text should be displayed, either right to left or left to right. Actually, more than two characters provide that, but there are some nuances there. But the basic gist of it is this. It's possible to write text that shows up in your screen in one way, and then because the compiler will ignore those right to left and left to right characters, be compiled in a different way. For example, you can have text uh, instructions appear as if they are inside of a comment, and then the compiler will compile them as if they're not inside the comment and they are actually code. Wow. And to top it all off, this affects every single language out there, basically. It's not a C thing, it's not C++, it's not C sharp, it, this affects basically any single language out there. And most of the tools that you use to either code them or review code or commit code, they will all happily show you whatever they're supposed to show you and then compile something slightly different. Wow. I mean, it's, it's clever in, in its simplicity, but it's effective because it's just like I um, we discussed before we hit the record one. It's just like, of course, that's how they're doing it. Why wouldn't they do it this way? Because it, it's, it's brilliant, it's simple, it's effective, and um, it's just one of those things that just uh, keep on surprising me. Yeah, absolutely. And again, as we mentioned just before starting, um, I was talking about how there should be a scale for amazement. And you mentioned that there should already be one. I'm not aware of it, if it, there is. Yeah. Just like there is for the, the scales of grief or the stages of grief. Because after a while, it's pretty easy to become jaded when you're working on IT and just, yeah, it's just another problem. It's just another issue. We'll deal with it somehow. But then something like this comes along and it just blows your mind. The The way that this implement this is implemented, the way, the scope of it, how it affects everything, basically, it's amazing. And yeah, <laughs> language compilers and the teams behind them are struggling to come up with solutions. You'll probably see GitHub updating the way they, they show you code, uh, tools like Atlassian and all of that. Basically everywhere that you can see code, 
you're probably going to start seeing some indicator. Okay, here is a character that should that changes the the order of the text that is displayed. You should probably take a look at this or just flag it somehow so that the user can actually see the difference. Mm -hmm. But again, yeah. the, this came up the this past few days. Um, the authors mentioned that there was a 99-day um, embargo on this, so there was ample time for uh, tools and vendors and whatever to prepare patches for this. So if they haven't yet, you'll probably start seeing some change logs on the tools that you use that uh, refer Unicode as being affected. And yep. it's really, really big. Yeah, it's like you can't even trust your code review at this point because you, you could have uh, passed the code review and there's still a problem. I mean, not to say that people can't miss things, but um, I mean, it could look correct, like you were saying, but then the code is completely right. You're looking at the code and you're seeing what you're supposed to see. It just gets compiled differently. And that completely avoids the, the code checking and the code review and all that. And it won't be flagged by anybody because they are looking at the code that seems correct. There's and no that, error. That is just one of those things. Like anytime I'm writing code and I have a problem, it's like I will look at that code like for 30 minutes trying to figure out what the problem is and I can't find it. And it's right there in front of my face. And then when I'm more rested, you know, I look at, oh, of course, that's the issue. I forgot this character over here or something. Or when I'm looking at someone else's code and they can't figure it out, but because I'm a fresh set of eyes, I notice something that they didn't notice. And I have to really recalculate how to live my life now if there's a possibility that I'm looking at the code and it is correct and it's not me missing something. It's literally correct on my screen and it's still a problem. Um, that just offsets my entire understanding of programming. <laughs> yeah. It sounds simple, but when you, the more you think about it, the more it just yeah. kind of falls over. Oh my that, gosh. That uh, matrix uh, screensaver that you have there running in the background, that's mm -hmm. pretty appropriate. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it, it is now more than ever. I wow, yeah, I never saw it. So uh, we'll have links to this in the show notes. But yeah. uh, for those with a pen handy, it's CVE number twenty twenty one forty two six ninety four. So twenty twenty one four two six nine four. Or just Google Trojan Source. It's the the fancy name that they gave the the vulnerability. It, yep. This has been covered basically everywhere. And again, this is a pretty big one. Um, there's not much you can do other than wait for your tools to actually be updated and patched. So if you see patches for those, just apply them and make sure that uh, you're not picking up code from some shady repository somewhere because it might have something like this in it. And again, this just shines another light on the supply source attacks that have been so much in vogue recently because this is another way that you can defeat even code review. So it's even easier and there are more avenues for you to get malicious code inside of some library somewhere that then gets picked up by some other tool or some other software. And this just spreads. And this way it's invisible. Wow. So yeah, uh, it's I believe I have it in the notes as trojansource.codes is the URL. Um, again, yeah, we'll have that nice. link in the description, so you guys can click on that link and check it out. But uh, we have another news story to get to, um, yeah. and I believe, if I'm not mistaken, we want to cover the CISA directive that was recently um, yeah. put in the news there. 
Okay, this is another very big one. This week was very, very good in big stories. So CISA is the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, and I was reading that because it's a very long name. This is a government agency in the US, and it's basically responsible for cybersecurity across all other agencies and for providing guidance to those other agencies. And this week they came up with uh, a Binding Operational Directive 22-01. This is a very silly reference here. But uh, this is basically reducing the significant risk of non-exploited vulnerabilities. Hmm. What this actually is, is a list of vulnerabilities, over 300 different vulnerabilities across several different uh, pieces of software that they have identified as being actively exploited by adversaries. So that means that those vulnerabilities, they have found on the wild exploits and those exploits being used by threat groups or uh, third-party agencies or other governments or whatever. I don't want to get into politics of it all. But there is some active exploitation of these vulnerabilities, of these specific vulnerabilities, and it has been picked up at the federal level in the US. And they have deemed it important enough that they are mandating that all government agencies at the federal and state level that they need to patch these vulnerabilities and they provide the definitive timeframes for this. For the majority of them, it's November 17th. That's a bit over one week from the time that we are recording it and probably a week from when the, the podcast goes live. Mm -hmm. That's a very strict deadline there. And then for some other of those vulnerabilities on that list, it's May 3rd. And the ones that get longer time to, to be patched are the ones that depend on Android or iOS or some other third-party vendor providing patches that are not yet available. And this is the elephant in the room. You need to understand that these vulnerabilities are not left unpatched just because nobody cares about them or nobody wants to patch them or something like this. It's because there is an obvious disruption to, act, to normal activities when you have to stop your systems to deploy patches. And yep. most agencies, most businesses will often defer that to a later date in order to not disrupt business at that point because there is never a good opportunity to stop your systems right. on an enterprise level. Right. I, I wonder if there was a co like some conversations happening with the IT people here that are being tasked with this directive to, to execute it. If um, the situation is the you know their manager comes in is like yeah we need to patch these vulnerabilities right now, um, it's very important. And then the reply is yeah we've been telling you that for like eight months now. Mm -hmm. Like why are you just now deciding to do what we've been telling you that we should be doing? Um, oh it's it's an executive order or it's a um, it's from CISA actually. So um, we were required to like why do we need a requirement? We should have been already doing this. We've been telling you. Um, it, it's kind of like it mirrors enterprise IT in a lot because the same thing happens. It's like, um, we need to patch. Yeah, I don't know. We can't really take the servers down right now. Maybe in a couple of months when things slow down yeah. a little bit, we could do it then. No, it's being exploited right now. Yeah, but eh, we'll be down and I don't like that. It's just, it's so frustrating for people in our industry to have to deal with this. Like we know the importance of it. I would argue that the majority, if not all of our listeners, they know the importance of it too. Mm -hmm. It's just getting other people on board and getting the necessary signatures to make it happen is often the hard part. 
because when you're dealing just with your own infrastructure at home, you can patch it whenever you want. <laughs> yeah. Because the disruption will be to your lights or something like that if you have your home assistant on. Right, um, <laughs> like what happened to me today. <laughs> <laughs> right. But, but on a large company, on a large enterprise, for example, I don't know, an online retailer. Imagine that Amazon just had this massive breach right now and they have to stop half their servers. Probably service won't be disrupted, but it will be slowed down. And more people will complain that the web pages are loading slower or something like that. And that costs them. That costs that in reputation, in lost business, in all of that. And that adds up very quickly. So there is always this balance that must be present here between business needs and IT needs. But when something like this happens and when a mandate like this appears, then you're in hot water. And right. Some people in the audience may, must be thinking, okay, why does this concern me? I live in Kenya or I live in France or something like that. Why does a, a federal order in the US bothers me? And it should bother you because the vendors that provide the patches and the applications that are vulnerable are not vulnerable only in the US, they're vulnerable anywhere they are used. And right. when a vendor deploys, when a vendor develops patches for that application, they won't develop them just for the US. This gets distributed everywhere. So you will have patches for those things to also deploy in your systems. You might not have the mandate, but now you know the urgency is there and the exploit is active. So if you choose to ignore it and defer the patches to a later date, it's by at your own risk. Someone has already told you about them. And yep. the list is pretty big. It has some the usual suspects. Acrobat, for example, is on that list as it always is on that list <laughs> yeah. yeah it really is that's just always wow and count on um, that one but there are lots of uh, vulnerabilities here there's android there's apache i'm looking at the list here um, ios has vulnerabilities then facetime has vulnerabilities mac os there's stuff like arm this goes all over the place uh, both on software that you deploy locally and on platforms like Atlassian and Confluence and Cisco stuff, you should really take a look at this list, see if any of these applications is running on your infrastructure and your environment. Uh, look at the nodes and find the patches for this. They usually defer the, the fixes to, to you getting in touch with your vendor or looking for vendor guidance on how to deploy them. Um, but this is really important. With this information, you know that they are being actively exploited. So right. they are not just a theoretical risk. This is actually being exploited somewhere. Exactly. That That's the key takeaway here, because like you're saying, it, it might be a U.S. mandate, but it's not, yeah. I mean, the Internet is connected to every country. So there's no yeah. um, United States Internet firewall that's blocking everyone, and it's only our problem. And especially considering that these vulnerabilities, if any of them were not popular, they are now because they're all over the news. So it's like, they're gonna really be trying to get in with these vulnerabilities before they get patched while they still can. And if they weren't looking at these, they are now. So that will make the importance level higher in other countries as a result of what we're doing. Everyone all over the place, you know, we have the same software. It's not like yeah. you have a different version of Apache in a different country than what we have here. Um, same code base, so now, this is going to have a cascading effect to um, IT people of all um, you know, walks of life in different areas. And um, 
Yeah, that's a lot of that. You know, we're, I think the key here is stretch. I've been talking about like anxiety and, you know, the, the state mm-hmm. of a vulnerability and the, the path you navigate emotionally through it to where you, yeah, you're yeah. not surprised anymore to, oh, my God, that's a, that's a brilliant to um, some sort of like, wow. So I am probably not going to have free time for the next couple of weeks. <laughs> yeah, that's a good conclusion. And yeah. the, the flip side of the coin here is that if some malicious groups were not aware of all of these vulnerabilities yet, they are now. So right. they will also start looking for the exploit code, which is often traded on Darknet and stuff like that on the dark web, and or even develop their own code because they are pretty handy at these type of things. And they can actually, if they know that the vulnerability is there and they have the description for it, a properly motivated attacker will probably can be able to come up with exploit code for this. So even for the groups that were not aware of them, they are now, and this this will even be further exploited. I think one of the bigger challenges, which I hope is not a challenge for anyone, but I know how it goes. I know that it probably will be because there's this, it's often the case, not always, that you have someone in management level that doesn't understand technology because that's just not what they do. That's not what they're into, but they have people for that. And they're given this directive, patch these things. It needs to be patched. And then... You know, the person does it, they do the work. Oh, but these three are not patched. You need to explain yourself right now because you're violating an order that these aren't patched. But the new version of iOS isn't out yet. The new version of Android or FaceTime or whatever it is isn't out yet. I don't care. You're supposed to get this fixed. Get it fixed now or you're out of a job. It's like, but you don't understand. I didn't write the software. (laughs) You know, it's like very uncomfortable. And I'm sure as much as I hope I'm wrong that there's someone out there going through a similar structure where they're, you know, the person they, they report to, they don't understand these things. Um, and then there's this, you know, it's even more anxiety provoking than it was anyway, because they have to explain why they can't do something because they don't have control over the code. So the best they could do is hope that Apple releases the fix or Android or whatever it is in a timely fashion. Will they? I hope so. I always yeah. hope they do, but we can't always count on it either. Yeah. And especially on Android, because there's such a uh, diversity of the ecosystem and the hardware yeah. and all that. It's not just Google releasing the code, it's the actual device man- device vendors providing code for their devices because there are often firmware updates that need to be done to update the Android running on them. So there are multiple levels here that need to, to come together to get this right. It's not just something that that Google can fix by itself. They can provide an update for Google for Android, but then the actual vendors, the hardware vendors have to pick it up and include it. So there are multiple layers here. And yeah, people will be in that position that you described. Absolutely. I hope, yeah, I just hope, I, I know I'm right, but I hope I'm not, you know? Um, and I think when it comes to Android, I mean, at least we could rest easy knowing that about two of the vendors will adopt the patches. <laughs> <laughs> maybe three, definitely not all of them. Maybe two or three of them will we'll, yeah. we'll pick it up. The rest of them are going to be like, yeah, buy a new phone because uh, that one's over a year old, so we don't care. Yeah. Um, my last Android phone, I think, was less than a year old, and they were already choosy over which patches they decided to put out for it. Um, yeah. And that's also another thing that you really can't control. And then to, t- to make matters worse, even if you manage to completely secure Android, which is impossible, but if you're magic and you could just do that, you still have a baseband modem. At the end of the day, no matter how secure your Android phone is, it still has a baseband modem 
And I'm assuming that's probably the first thing hackers are going to try to get to anyway. Um, so that's one of those things we can't really fix easily because we have the baseband modem and it's older than the Android OS is itself. So and that's it's good. running a black box of software inside the modem, yep. and it's <laughs> and that's a whole different set of problems right there that we might not want to get into right now because right. we would get out of it so soon. Uh, but yeah, having two separate operating systems inside of a phone that's tricky, and Android has been pulling that off for years now. But there are issues. There are several issues around that. Yep, we don't we don't fix anything. I mean, we'll, well, we do in code, but we don't. Technically, it's like here's the thing that has a problem. We could fix it, or it could stack this other thing on top of it. That'll yeah. that one. This thing has problems, so let's just stack something else on top of that, and that fixes that one. But it opens up these vulnerabilities, so they keep stacking these mitigations and fixes on top on top of another. Next thing you know, you have a vulnerability chain possibility. It's, um, it's, wow! Another thing that came up on this is a mandate here. Uh, they provide the fact sheet where they have some background for this uh, request and why they're targeting these vulnerabilities. And they have this very interesting number. On 2020, during 2020, they came up to an average of 28 critical vulnerabilities every single day. All day, <laughs> every single day of the year, 28 critical vulnerabilities. Not just one piece of software across multiple pieces of software, but man, 28 critical vulnerabilities a day. We really suck at writing software, where really it's do. really, really hard to do properly. It really there's is. not ways yeah. to look at this. There's not. It, it's just the whole um, engineer versus developer problem that we've always been through, where the developers like, yeah, I'm having a problem with um, my SQL. And I need to get this fixed. And the uh, manager's like, well, use someone else's SQL. We need to get this fixed now or we need to get this released now. You don't understand. It's going to break. No, no, we can update it later. Don't worry. Just get it out the door. We'll, we'll make a day one patch for it or whatever. And there's always this rush to, to meet deadlines. Um, and it's really harming the industry. I, I would... I wish that there was some way to know a reliable metric of how many of these bugs are just deadlines. Um, deadline-induced bugs or something like that. Um, thankfully, a lot of these things are open source. We have access to the code, but if it's um, iOS, for example, we don't. So we can only hope the vendor does the right thing in a timely fashion, but it's out of our control. Yeah. And couple this with the Trojan source attack, even if you have the source and they're looking at it, you may not see the bug. Right, that's true. It's like, well, what, so, yeah. what, what can I trust now? It's like we're playing the Kobayashi Maru with software. <laughs> and no solution. No. No solution whatsoever. But, but yeah, and before, the, and before the developers uh, bring the, the pitchforks, yeah, I know I was exaggerating. You guys write tremendous code, and you guys do everything that you can to prevent this. But still, 28 critical vulnerabilities a day. That's a lot. Any way that you look at this, that's way, way too many. That is. Yeah. It's like, even if you as a developer are doing everything the right way and you've introduced zero security issues into your software, maybe one of those libraries that you are pulling into it, mm -hmm. then that has the vulnerability in it. It's not even your fault as a developer. Someone else's problem, but you're pulling their problem into yours because you know, you're not writing, you know, libssl or anything like that. You're including it. Or mm -hmm. if you have an app that plays sound or something, you're you're going to include a um, library that 
is able to access the sound card because you don't want to rewrite that. But that itself could have a vulnerability in it. And it's not even the developer's fault at that point. They're doing everything the right way. And then they release software and everybody's mad at that company for it, for the bug when it's not even their problem. But nobody, you know, on the nobody on the outside really understands how this is structured on the inside, which is just confusing for everyone. Yeah, yeah. Even for us. Yeah, it is sometimes. Absolutely. Isn't it? I mean, we can't even trust our code reviews anymore. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, but yeah, the, these vulnerabilities are really, really big. Um, also, this list is this is expected to grow in the future. Uh, CISA does bring it forward. This is their list at the moment, so this may be expanded in the future to include further vulnerabilities. Um, but yeah. Um, not following this, I don't know what the penalties are. I, I assume there will be some type of penalties. I don't know what how enforceable this is practically. Right. Um, but uh, anyway, now you know that the vulnerabilities are there, are being exploited, and you should be careful with those things. I hope they just don't like whatever the penalty is for not being patched. I hope they're they're not just punishing the wrong person. Like they they better be prepared to go after Apple or whoever it is if the problem is on that side rather than the person implementing or not implementing the patches, because they can't implement a patch that doesn't exist unless they're a developer. So um, hopefully there's enough intelligence with whoever makes a decision on the penalty to know who exactly is the route to target, because maybe they could just go after Apple if they're not timely or something and it's out of our hands at that point. Um, we can just hope for the best. That may be a possibility, but what will probably happen is that if you have a company that's doing business with any of these agencies, they will mandate this on you as well. So you won't be able to bid on public uh, works or something like that if you don't follow this, if you don't have this patch. So this will trickle down to everybody and they are probably expecting that having so many people complaining that they don't have the patches will get the vendors to actually get the patches out if they haven't yet. Um, yep. I could also see it being a possibility that the government, if they're not already doing this, they could say, okay, if you're using Android, it has to be these specific models of handsets that do regularly have security updates. You're not allowed mm -hmm. to use this brand or that model. It has to be one of these, has to be on the approved list, has to be recycled every three years just to make sure it's not end of life. Mm -hmm. um, I feel like unless they're... Hopefully they are doing this, but if they're not, then they, I mean, with Android, you kind of have to because they can't really rely on Motorola or whoever to get the patches out there. They have to get a device that's going to be kept up to date by the vendor. And maybe that's a better way to attack it than just um, hoping that this 10 year old phone will eventually have a patch for it. Um, while I agree with the sentiment and not knowing the, the intimate details of government work in the US, not right. being a US citizen myself. Um, I do know that there is this policy of the government not picking winners uh, on this type of situation. So I don't know how effective or how possible it will be for the government to say that because they would effectively be promoting those specific models over others. So I don't know if that's uh, even acceptable in the public eye in the US. Yeah, I think I even wonder if there's ever a way that it could just be on a government mandate level that you have to update the patches for your device for X number of years if you're selling it to the public and it has network connectivity. But you're right. Maybe 
that would be seen as yeah they they really favor samsung um yeah. i guess they must be getting some campaign funds from samsung because that's the direction they went um and we wouldn't want that either so no matter which way you look at this it's just going to be confusing and just uh, a pain for a lot of people yeah, to navigate, but what can and we do as you can see it goes way beyond the scope of just it the it this is policy, this is standards, this is security requirements and all that. And on a practical level, you just need to know what patches you have to deploy next maintenance window and don't really care about this. But right. you should. This is the type of news that as an IT practitioner, you should be following this news. You should be following this list. You should be aware of this type of situation. And it will affect your work eventually, if not immediately. And if it doesn't affect your work immediately, something else will. <laughs> just before, I mean, just before I hit the record button, literally right before I hit the record button, um, I, I just got an email that one of the disks died in my TrueNAS. Uh, it is Ooh. RAID. Of course, it's fine. It could lose two disks before it starts because it's like a RAID 6 equivalent. But still, it's like you never know, right? It's like it's <laughs> literally Friday today as we're recording this, and I have a failed disk. So I have to go source over the weekend another disk for it. It's be a fun weekend. Um, if it, you know, it could have happened on a Tuesday or a Wednesday, but no, of course it's going to happen on a Friday. What other thing would it happen on? Murphy is your friend. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, we, we'll have the links to that, those um, vulnerabilities and, and whatnot. So everyone can uh, definitely read up on that. Um, and I think the other, one of the other things, at least, or it might even be the only other topic was the new Fedora, because that's kind of, that's going to be popular for a lot of enterprise users. So we don't normally do distribution reviews or anything. Um, but this is very common. Fedora is very common because people, especially if they manage Red Hat family or enterprise Linux family servers, they'll often use Fedora on their workstation because it's not going to be exactly the same as the enterprise Linux, but it's probably the closest you can get on a laptop or desktop without actually installing enterprise Linux on your laptop or desktop. And basically it's the best bet for the packages that will eventually make it to CentOS and Drell in the future. So yep. this is like the, the staging for those packages. I mean, most businesses will have a couple of Fedora boxes if for no other reason, just to know what is coming down the pipeline. I think um, what surprised me about Fedora 35 is that, um, I mean, some of the things that I've noticed are not new, but they're just new to me because after I did my review of Fedora 34 on my channel, people wrote in to let me know, oh yeah, but that you could have done it this way. And you know, you, that's how I learned. And I, I like it when people correct me mm -hmm. because that's how I find things out. Um, so um, in Fedora 34, you would just open up GNOME software. It would say, do you want third party repositories or whatever? If you say yes, then you have extra software there. Fedora 35, I think this is, it's, it's about the little things. I think that's the theme of Fedora 35. There's nothing huge that's going to make you say, oh, this is so great. I want to switch right now. There's no one huge thing. Just a, a lot of small ideas that are good. For example, the welcome screen when you log in for the very first time is going to ask you if you want those third-party repositories. Not when you open GNOME software. We're talking about like when you first log in. And it's great because... Um, I would notice in Fedora 34 that GNOME software comes up and asks me, I say, yes, I would like those repositories. And GNOME software doesn't work. It's still refreshing or something in the background, but close it, open it, still doesn't work. Close it, open it, still doesn't work. And eventually it's working. Um, I think it's smarter to ask this question at the very beginning, because by the time you go to open GNOME software, it's already refreshing and, and pulling things down. And then I noticed it's more 
it, it's almost, if not exactly as easy to use as Ubuntu now because Fedora pretty much never wanted anything to do with proprietary drivers. And I don't either, to be honest, I don't either. But if it's leisure time and it's time to play games on my laptop and my laptop has an NVIDIA GPU, you know, I'm sorry, but I really want to play my game. But Fedora would do nothing to help make that easy for people. So they'd sideload a repository and get the NVIDIA driver. But now, once you enable those third-party repositories, the NVIDIA driver is right in GNOME software. Click it, install, done, reboot, you're all set. Um, I'm like, wow, this is like really good. Um, even I, I get it. Like proprietary drivers are horrible, but until NVIDIA does the right thing and um, publishes their specs, I mean, unfortunately, that's not something we can get away from completely. Yeah, absolutely. And there's no no expected date for that to happen, so this might still continue for quite some time. Um, right. I tend to use Fedora not so much as a, as a desktop replacement, but uh, to try the, the packages that will eventually make it to CentOS and uh, mm -hmm. Red Hat. So I ran uh, the Fedora server spin and just run it text mode, no, no graphic interface on, on it. And yeah, I basically just updated the box that I had running 34 to 35, everything went smoothly. I have my containers running, I have, I don't know, my web server running, and yeah, basically smooth sailing. Um, mm -hmm. I used to run <laughs> a few years back, I believe I already talked about this with you, it might have been off the air. Um, a few years back, I used to run Fedora Rawhide, like living mm -hmm. on the edge, the absolutely alpha version of all the packages. And it always amused me the tagline that they use there. Um, Some days this even works. That's the <laughs> tagline for Rawhide for a while. Um, and I look at Fedora 35 on the server side, on Fedora 35 server spin specifically. I'm absolutely not complaining about this, but being a part through my work with Texcare and all that, being in the middle of the Red Hat environment, um, I still see Fedora as a test bed for packages for the other for the other distros, both CentOS Stream now and for for RHEL. And I always approach it with that degree of uncertainty about how stable it's going to be. And I was surp pleasantly surprised by by thirty five. Yeah, it's really good. Um... I would say it's the closest Fedora has ever been to something that I would recommend to an average user. That has never been the case before. I'm not saying it's 100% either. It, there's still some rough edges. It's a workstation distribution. It's not a put this on your family member's laptop distribution. It might work out okay. And I think it has a better chance now than it's ever had. But it's not like made for that, but they still have made a lot of improvements that are making it easier to run. To where I think, you know, you and I both, we could use this as our daily driver, I would suspect. Mm -hmm. Doesn't mean like everybody would. I think the problem, one of the problems with Fedora has been not Fedora's fault. It's everyone, when they write how-tos and tutorials for how to install Slack, how to install whatever, Spotify or whatever it is, or even just a enterprise remote desktop app, they're writing the instructions for Ubuntu with Ubuntu screenshots, Fedora doesn't theme anything, so it's the straight GNOME theme. But you know, someone who doesn't know any better, they're like, well, it doesn't look like the screenshot because Ubuntu themes everything, mm -hmm. I mean, majorly so. So nothing looks the same between the two, even though it might actually be the same. And it's hard for some people to navigate that because why does this look so different than it does for me? 
And that's frustrating, um, but that's not Fedora's fault. They don't have anything to do with that. And people just assume you're running Ubuntu, which may not always be the case. But now we have flat packs. So it's pretty much getting to the point where things are universal. If you want to get like one of those um, work apps installed on your computer, um, it really doesn't matter as much now if it's Fedora or Ubuntu like it used to. So I would argue that we're in a much better place for people to use Fedora as their daily driver than we have ever been before. It's containerization, containerization taken to the extreme, basically. You're no yep. longer just getting a, a development stack on a container, you're getting a single application on the container and deploying that. Um, and it's a great application. It completely eliminates all those problems with compatibility and libraries being in different paths on different distributions and having different names and all that. It doesn't matter. It goes inside of the, the Flatpak or the Snap or whatever and you just deploy it and run it, and it will work. So what is your opinion on, because um, I'm sure other people are pro probably wondering this too, because I often forget that there's a server version of Fedora. I knew that, mm -hmm. but it, I don't think about that often. I think most people are thinking about CentOS and Alma Linux and Rocky Linux and Oracle and all those. Um, oh, Fedora's got a server version too, yeah. um, which was fine, but now it's like, okay, we have CentOS Stream, so where does... Fedora server fit in now that we have CentOS Stream? That's my confusion. It gets packages even before CentOS Stream gets oh. them. So it's even further upstream if you if you look at it that way. Um, you're basically testing the packages. If everything goes fine, if nobody complains too much, they will eventually get pulled into CentOS Stream and then make it to rail at some point. Um, gotcha. But yeah, it's more as a test bed for that. They won't tell you it's a testbed. They will tell you that you can deploy it and run it and whatever. But that's the actual use case for it. You're testing whatever comes along and whatever will be there next. I would wonder and assume that even though that's true, like Fedora server could potentially be very stable. I'm not saying it isn't. Fedora 35 has been stable for me. The only issue I ran into was if I boot with an external display attached, it won't boot. But as long as I <laughs> disconnect that HDMI cable, it works just fine, and I can connect it later. Um, I'm sure they'll patch that because it, it was like, you know, within 24 hours of release. But it's kind of like if you're just running Fedora server with no extra packages installed whatsoever, except for like Docker or something like that. It's just like the Linux kernel and Docker, all of your apps are in Docker. So it doesn't matter if like Fedora is shipping a bleeding edge version of something, who cares? You just throw it, just run a container and then you just like ignore the majority of the packages that are in the repository just to install your updates and update your containers. And I think I'd probably argue, let me know if you disagree, that that's probably just as stable as anything else. Probably, as long as the two packages that you're deploying there are stable. Right. Point in case being Docker and the kernel. And they will be running versions that are more bleeding edge. They're not bleeding edge. They are considered stable, but still. Right. They're more recent than the ones that are in CentOS and on rail and on my early days that actually <laughs> made a lot of confusion why am i running 20 versions late on centos and calling this table why am i not using all the latest features that i can find on fedora for example and right yeah it took me a while to realize that stability matters more than some of those features so 
for the enterprise, you should always go with that. But if you're looking, if you're testing your software, your application to see how it will deploy one year from now and whatever is available, yeah, Fedora is a pretty good test case for that. Is you deploy one, you see your application, it will be running versions that are fresher and closer to the actual sources. And it's a pretty good place to, to test that. And you get GNOME, uh, GNOME 41 as your desktop yeah, environment in there, yeah. which um, is so weird that I'm saying this, but Ubuntu has been behind for two releases now in GNOME. And the reason why I, I, it matters to me is because the whole reason why people use intermediary, non-long-term supported Ubuntu releases, the in-between releases, is because they want the bleeding edge software. People that don't want that, they'll stick on LTS and that's where they'll stay. But the people that just want that bleeding edge software, they have a choice. They just use a non-LTS release. Um, and now even that's like not kept up to date. Whereas Fedora's like, uh, what do you mean you're not shipping GNOME 41? We're shipping GNOME 41. Like, what's the problem? Yeah. <laughs> and it works fine. I don't have any issues with GNOME 41. In fact, I would say, in my opinion, on the user-facing side, there's very little different in GNOME 41. It's all back-end stuff this time around that they're focusing on. So it's probably the most stable upgrade of Fedora ever because you you really don't have that many changes. It's just just upgrade to it if you're on Fedora 34 and you should be fine. Yeah. Um, it's great, actually. Well, actually, on the, the graphical interface side of things, I'm more of an XFCE and Matt and Mate and Cinnamon guy than actually GNOME or KDE, but mm -hmm. yeah, I can see the improvements in GNOME. I can see that it's more responsive and it's crisper and it actually looks better on, on high DPI screens and all of that. Yeah. Um, but I tend to prefer the, the low resource consumption on XFCE, for example. It's just a matter of personal taste there. It and again, Fedora will have the spins for you or you can just include the whole XFCE group if you want to after, after you install it. And that's a good choice. That, that's a good point. I mean, yeah, they have a plasma edition. They have all kinds of different editions. Um, you know, I, I love uh, Mate and XFCE and all those two. Um, the reason why I use GNOME is just, there's two reasons now. There used to be one. Dynamic workspaces are it's so hard to get away from that. Like like once I get got used to that, it's just like no other distribution that I know of or no other desktop environment does it like that. Um, but now with Pop! OS tiling, it's available for other distributions. You don't have to be running Pop! OS. You can install that extension. Mm -hmm. Like tiling in GNOME works so well. And it was unbelievable, especially when you have an ultra wide. But if you don't, you could have like window groups where things are tabs. So even on mm -hmm. a standard 1080p panel, you could still have multiple tabs and things. Um, if, Ma if Mate would get uh, I'm, I'm sure there's a way to get tiling in Mate because you can just change the window manager. But if they have a um, one button um, overlay your activities view to see every app and then dynamic workspaces, I'd probably switch to Mate tomorrow. Yeah, it's probably about the, the window manager. You can probably find one that does that. Yep. There are so many after all. <laughs> yep. So that's the beauty of it. We, ha we have a choice. It's like it's yeah, some operating absolutely. systems. Sorry <laughs> you don't like the Windows UI. Uh, way to, I don't know eight years or however long until the next version of Windows comes out and you might get something better. Um, but now it's like, yeah, I don't like that GNOME thing. I'm just going to like delete it and then put something else on top of it. It's still the same operating system, different UI. Um, yeah. That's on that other operating system that you were mentioning, and I won't name names, but if you Google something like Explorer Patcher or something like that, you'll get something of, of that. All of that stuff, you'll get it back. Yep. 
Yep. And it's um, another, well, speaking of the OS that we shouldn't name, I'm, well, I'll just name it Windows 11, but it's just, because um, I did a, a video about it recently, yes. you could run GUI Linux apps on there now. I mean, it's still not quite the same thing. And I was um, expecting it not to work. Of course, it didn't when I tried to run GNOME Control Center <laughs> on Windows 11, because I'm like, oh, what's going to happen when I try to change my wallpaper in GNOME Control Center, even though that's not the desktop environment I'm using? Of course, it didn't even open. But if I was to run something like gedit, just a you know a Linux graphical text editor, that worked just fine. So we have options now, whereas we didn't. I just kind of wish we have the we had the reverse, where if only Microsoft would just release a patch to Wine to make it work for everything. <laughs> we could just run the Windows app on yeah. our platform. But if they yeah. if they slack a bit on that grip that they hold on Wine, that would be amazing. That would. Um, but it's really impressive that we are able to run GUI applications of uh, Linux inside of Windows. Things have come a, a very long way since, I don't know, Windows 7 or Windows XP, when the guys at Microsoft were saying that uh, Linux was a cancer. Right. Things have evolved very, very much. And they evolved in the right direction to me. Yes, I agree. I completely agree. They're doing the right thing. And um, and, and to call it like I see it, you know, giving praise where it's due, um, you know, I don't think Windows Terminal would ever be my daily driver. I mean, Windows isn't, but just how you can change the shell in one window. Mm -hmm. So if you want, like in, in the case of Windows, DOS or PowerShell or Batch, whatever it is, one app, you just drop down, switch your, your shell. Um, Brilliant. You don't have to open like a different app altogether just to get a different shell. You can have one app and then whatever shell you're using, you use it right there. Um, I can imagine a Linux terminal would be that would be great like that. Imagine mm -hmm. if you could drop down and you have a Python shell, then you have a Bash shell, then you have ZSH. You could just Do you know that they open source that? The Windows terminal is open source? I didn't know. Yeah, that's just yeah, amazing. You can, you can get that on GitHub. Um, wow. And they're accepting contributions from folks, regular folks that want to improve it, and they're taking the contributions. And yeah, they've been working on that for quite some time. I've been following that as well. Um, wow. And it looks really good, and it works really well as well. Are we in the twilight zone? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But wow. The, the Windows terminal, it's open source. They even open source the font that they used. Uh, they had this amazing video where they showcased Windows Terminal at the start before releasing it, a few months before releasing it, and it looked amazing. It was like you were using the interfaces in Star Trek or something like that with all yep. these great effects and all that. And they showcased something called, let me see, ligatures. Uh, mm -hmm. Actually, not just ligatures, but basically they compressed two characters into their Unicode equivalent, for example, greater or equal. It would just take one character space, oh, and they wow. did that automatically. But that required ones that the font that you were using actually supported that. So they actually open source the font as well. You can also wow. get the, the, the font up on GitHub and see the code and change it however you see fit. Yeah, wow, they, that is they're so doing cool. some, some pretty cool work on the, the open source side of things. They really are. So yeah, like I said, you got to give them credit where it's due, because if they're doing yeah. a good thing, you got to People like to complain a lot, but if we could just say, hey, great job every now and then, I think um, that would be the world would be a better place. If, we if only they didn't that. mess the, the start menu so many times and so often, that would be amazing. I, it really would. I, I like the new start menu in Windows 11. It's, the, you know, there's fewer features, 
but there's less tiles. There's, there's no tiles <laughs> yeah. um, anymore at all. Right. So it's like, oh, I just, just like the old days, just click on a thing and there's a list of apps. I click on the app. Um, okay. That's the way it should have been always. Um, so, you know, it is what it is. I think, um, you know, they're going in a good direction at least. If they keep going in this direction, I think only good things will come. So, um, yeah, yeah. good job. Absolutely. So, was there anything else in the news or otherwise we should discuss? I believe that's everything I at least remember from the list. Yeah, I think we've covered the, the big news from the week. These are the real big stories that broke. I'm sure we missed something somewhere, but we'll get to it eventually. Well, there's 28 or so vulnerabilities every day. So, of course, we, <laughs> we missed a bunch, honestly. There are, actually, there are actually way more than 28. 28 are the critical ones. Oh, critical, just the critical right. ones. Which so is like worse. Five new ones since the time we started talking? Probably. <laughs> wow. So I guess that also means yeah. that we won't have any shortage of things to talk about, which is yeah, um, good for us, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So, um, well, that's our podcast. Uh, thanks again to everyone watching or listening or however you're digesting okay. this content. We appreciate it. Um, new artwork is rolling out now. It, I guess by the time people are hearing this, that would have already happened and they already knew that. But um, yeah, so we have new artwork, which is great. So from mm -hmm. here, I, you know, we're just going to keep doing what we do and we're having a lot of fun. So hopefully yeah. everyone's enjoying it. Yeah. Thanks, everybody, for for joining and till the next one. Thank you. Thanks.